Our second reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 11. John, can you pull me back a little bit? I'm hearing a little too much of myself up here. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses uh, 1 through 11. Hear the word of God. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elder. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while... The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have the words of life and so we turn to you this day and we pray that you would be present here with us by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that... Uh, you would give us ears uh, to hear and hearts to respond to your word. And I do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, those of you who were here last Sunday may have gone to the brunch that happened between the service, which was a really sweet thing because we hadn't been able to gather for a couple of years because of the COVID uh, wow. First of all, the food was great, uh, and the deacons did a terrific job in organizing all of that and putting all of that together. It was beautifully presented, and it just felt so, I don't know, so natural to be, to be back, uh, together again and to, to see everyone and to sit at table with one another. So thanks to everyone who, uh, made that happen. So next week, I'm going to be beginning a three-month uh, preaching sabbatical. I'm going to be here every week. I just won't be preaching. Pastor Bruno uh, will be in the pulpit, and you are going to enjoy the change of pace as much as I will. Uh, the session instructed me uh, to take this sabbatical because it is time uh, for me to get my doctoral dissertation uh, done so instead of working on a sermon each week i'll be i'll be working on my dissertation and i'm looking forward to it part of my dissertation uh is a history of this church 
We got our start as a prayer meeting organized by a very refined and educated woman, the sister of a local doctor. That prayer meeting met in a in a uh, school building up the pike about a half a mile. Uh, back in the winter of 1857 and 1858, there was a revival that was going on at that time uh, in Philadelphia. And a bit of the revival fire uh, landed right here in Huntington Valley. Now, anyone who has children knows that kids are stamped with a personality from the womb. They come out a certain way. They just are who they are. Parents don't create the personality of their children. They discover it. Each of us has a certain personality. We're born with it, and it remains largely the same throughout our lives. Well, here's the weird thing. Churches are the same way. Churches have a personality, and those personalities kind of, sort of, stay the same over very long stretches of time. Who HVPC is today is kind of who HVPC was in 1975, and who HVPC was in 1975 is kind of who HVPC was in 1925, And who HVPC was in 1925 is kind of who HVPC was in 1865. The personality, the character of this congregation has remained steady over time. I know this because I've been with you for more than 10% of the history of this church. But I've also studied your history deeply. I've read sermons of our Pastors from long ago, I've studied the causes that our church crusaded for in the past. Do you know that we are on record in the congressional record for our stand against polygamy, for example? It's not such a hot issue today, but it might be next next year. We don't know, right? What is the HVPC church personality? I'm sure you all have your thoughts on that. My take on this church is is that this is a church for the heart and the head. What do I mean a church for the heart? Well, this church was born out of a revival, and this church has always been about getting people to get their hearts right with God. People giving their hearts to Jesus. We believe in repentance and conversion. We believe that you must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. Evelyn Brown, who's more than 100 years old, told me the story of coming to this church. It's got to be more than 60 years ago. And uh, her friends who went to the Methodist church up the road uh, heard that she was coming to HVPC. And, and they said to her, oh, you're going to the Holy Roller Church. If you're not willing to hear a little hellfire and brimstone preaching every once in a while you'd probably be uncomfortable in this congregation. And it's been that way since the get-go. It's part of the DNA of this church. But this is also a church uh, for uh, the head. We're a church of the heart, but we're also a church of the head. And it's always been that way, too. The founders of this church were educated people. They have always expected their pastor to preach an intelligent sermon. In my experience, this church... Uh, is a place where people are willing to dig deep and to ask hard questions because, you know, the Bible does tell us to love God with our whole heart and our whole soul and our whole mind. We do not leave our 
brains in the parking lot when we come to church. We want to learn. We want to understand. We're willing to be challenged. We're not afraid of hard questions. And so we also are a church for the head. And I don't know if you know it. I don't know how much time you spent in other churches. But this combination of head and heart is actually rather rare. Plenty of churches whose hearts are on fire are afraid of scholarship and learning. Fundamentalism and anti-intellectualism have a long history of living together. And on the other side, plenty of intellectual churches have a rather cool heart. Spend some time in uh, intellectual churches and you'll wonder what it is that they believe at all and why they even bother getting together. And so the fact that we have those two things together here, head and heart, I think it's wonderful. I think it's one of the reasons that I've been called to this place and why I love this place. Another distinctive about this church, and this is of long standing, is what I call our hodgepodginess. We are an all-ages church. We are an all-races kind of church. We come from a lot of different religious backgrounds. I've had... Church growth experts tell me that we're doing it the wrong way. If you want to grow a mega church, you have to focus on a certain narrow demographic. You have to go after that, that group the way you would go after your target market. But we've chosen to go a dif- different way. It's harder. It means that we have to get along with different kinds of people which is the primary reason that we have two services, even though we could all fit into one service, because people of different backgrounds appreciate different styles, and we support those styles. It is easier to be a church of just one style. But I think we've chosen the right path, because I think the kingdom of God is going to be made up of a lot of different kinds of people, and so we should get used to that here. Since I've been here, 175 people have joined this church. And the diversity of theological backgrounds is stunning. During my time here, we have welcomed Roman Catholics, Jews, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Pentecostals, Swedenborgians, Baptists, Methodists, Nazarenes, Salvationists, Eastern Orthodox, and all kinds of different non-denominational folks. We've even let in a few Presbyterians. As your teaching, it's a minority. As your teaching elder, let me tell you, that makes life complicated. Interesting, but complicated. But this is one of the distinctive features of our church's personality. And have you thought about the, the race profile? Of this church. 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. It is perfectly natural for people to want to worship with their own kind. Now, if you visit the three closest churches to this church, you'll see something different from what you see in this church. Go across the pike to First Baptist Church there on Murray Avenue. It is 100% African American. Go up the Pike, just a little bit, our next closest church is a Korean Presbyterian church. You're going to go into that church and it's 100% Asian. And you go just beyond that to, I guess they call it New Life Community Church now. Old timers remember it as Memorial Baptist. And I'm pretty sure that that's going to be 100% white in that church. Here at HVPC, we have about 15% non-white membership. 
We've had a couple of worship services in the early service where we have had a majority non-white in this congregation, which should strike you as very strange because we are a theologically conservative, egghead, Presbyterian church in Lower Moreland Township. From a demographic, statistical, sociological point of view, what's happening here is actually very odd. I think it's wonderful, but it's very odd. Racial strife is the deep wound in America. I know there are some people who want to solve social problems with political programs. Personally, I believe more in relationships. When people get to know people, when people live life together, then things work out. And if we can't work things out in the church... Where can we work them out? This church's hodgepodginess took another step this year in our partnership with our Brazilian sister church, Fellowship Presbyterian Church. Now, most of us here at HVPC come from families who have been in the United States for a long time. But now we are partnered with an immigrant church, a church that is full of people who came here for the exact reasons that my English grandmother and my Scottish grandfather came here, looking for jobs and looking for economic opportunity. It's an addition to our hodgepodginess, and it's something special about this place. Now, I don't know if you think of HVPC as being a big church, a little church, a medium-sized church. Statistically, we are a little larger than the average American church. I call us a family-sized church. We're at a size where everybody can know each other. I know everybody. For the first hundred years of this congregation, we were about the same size that we are now. And then in the 1950s, as Huntington Valley uh, turned into a suburb, the church mushroomed, uh, reaching its peak of 780 members in 1965. And then for the next 40 years, the church slowly returned to the size it had been for a hundred years. And we've remained steady, growing modestly, though the COVID set us back in a way that it set every church back. And now that we are entering the post-COVID world, I believe that we will return to our modest growth again. I believe that God has larger things for this church in mind. I believe that there is a harvest waiting just outside of our doors. All of us in this congregation know people who need to know Christ. And this is a good place to welcome them, to know Him. God has a way of doing big things with small people. I don't know if you've noticed it, but it is a a pattern throughout Scripture. Both of our readings this morning are about God doing big things with small people. The tiny nation of Israel, which has been a blessing to the whole world. The tiny group of followers of Jesus who have become the most important force for change in the whole world. How did that happen? How did an insignificant, powerless group in the Roman Empire become the largest religion on the planet? Why would an insignificant, nomadic people from the late Bronze Age still survive today? their culture and traditions intact, having a huge impact on global culture? Well, I think the short answer is, well, because God willed it. But the longer answer takes us through the amazing story of how God works in 
and through and with people, and how God gives grace to the humble. The longer answer, I think, tells us a little bit about what God is doing here at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church. Let's begin with the Jews who are on the eastern shore of the Jordan River. They're still in the wilderness. They're waiting to enter the Promised Land. That's our reading uh, from Deuteronomy this morning. It begins with, Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel. It's a call to attention. It's a kind of a wake-up call. We live in a noisy world, but listen up. Hear this, people of God. God has something to say to you. And what God has to say in our reading this morning from Deuteronomy is all about how God acts and people act and how all of that is connected and tied up together. We spent, I don't know, six, seven, eight weeks uh, recently uh, preaching about the doctrine of providence. Looking at what the Bible says about providence. Providence is, is this idea that God not only makes the world, but that God also governs the world. How does this happen? How is it that God governs the world, but yet people are actors in the world? Are we the ones who are doing things, or is it God who is doing things? In our reading this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 9, we see what I call a providence sandwich. Think about a sandwich. You got the bread on the top, you got the meat in the middle, and you have the bread on the bottom. All right? That's what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 9. It's a providence sandwich. Verse 1, God speaking to the people says, You are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven. Okay, so the people of Israel are going to go do these mighty things. They're going to take on people who are bigger and more powerful than themselves. That's the top piece of bread. Now down in the second part of verse 3, we read, You shall drive them out and make them perish quickly. The people of Israel are going to do mighty things. They're going to drive out and destroy whole nations. That's the bottom piece of bread in the providence sandwich. The top and the bottom parts of the providence sandwich are what I think of as another version of the David and Goliath story, another story of an underdog taking on and destroying a larger enemy, another story about a small people taking on a big people. We see these stories throughout the Bible. But let's look what lies between the upper and lower bread in the providence sandwich. Let's listen to what we read in the first part of verse 3. God says, Know therefore today that he who goes over you, whoops, as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them for you, before you. That's the meat of the sandwich. Who is it that destroyed and subdued the nations of Canaan? Was it the children of Israel? Yes. Was it Yahweh? Yes. So what's going on here? Is the Bible contradicting itself? In its chapter on providence, which we read a couple of weeks ago, the Westminster Confession of Faith makes a distinction between primary causes and secondary causes. Cause is the reason that something happens. 
So if you ask the reason for Israel occupying Palestine, you're asking about the causes. Did God do it? Did the Israelites do it? The distinction between a primary and a secondary cause is an idea that has its roots in the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, a 13th century theology professor. He, in turn, borrows the idea from Aristotle, a Greek philosopher who lived about 300 years before Jesus. I don't have the time or the brains to explain mm, primary and secondary causes and how they work together, but according to this way of thinking, the nation of Israel is the secondary cause of the occupation of Palestine, but God is the primary cause. The nation of Israel and all of those people and their animals and their weapons had been wandering around for a long time. They made the occupation happen. They are the natural cause, the secondary cause of the population of what happened there in Palestine that we know at that time. The people of Israel are the secondary cause of the occupation. They did it. They were the actors who made something happen. But at the same time, behind the scene, in deep reality, God is the supernatural cause behind those natural causes. God is the divine actor behind the human actors. God is the primary cause behind the secondary causes. Who destroyed and subdued the nations in Canaan? Was it the children of Israel? Yes. Was it Yahweh? Yes. Now let's press on a little bit because this word for of God promising to take Israel into the land comes with a warning. And I want us to hear this warning. In verse 4 we read, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, do not say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me into this land. Even if you recognize that God's hand has brought you the desires of your heart, even if you recognize that God's hand has prospered you, you might be tempted to say, oh, God has looked upon me with favor. God has blessed me. God has prospered me because I've been obedient. God favored me because I'm righteous. But in this case, at least, In the case of the Israelite nation entering the promised land, God says, don't you dare. Don't you, don't you dare think this is about what you did. Don't you dare think this is because you are good or true or righteous. God brings the people of Israel into their promised inheritance, not because they're righteous, not because they're obedient. He does it out of pure grace. He does it to bring glory to his own name. God says to his chosen people, the Lord your God is not giving you this good land because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. There is a real danger in human pride. Pride in our accomplishments, pride in what we've done, pride in our wisdom. Even if What we have done is seemingly in the service of the church of the kingdom of God. It's possible for pastors and for elders and for congregations to get a big head when their church prospers. If the pews are packed and the collection plate is full. There is Christian pride, churchy pride. My church is better than yours. Our church is bigger than your church. 
And it's that way because we're really good. So let's be careful. Anytime we start getting puffed up and satisfied with ourselves, let's be careful. Here on the cusp of the greatest victory in the life of God's people up to that time, the dispossessed, disrespected, landless people of Israel are about to occupy a good country, a country flowing with milk and honey. They're on the cusp of their greatest victory. And in that moment, there is no time or place for pride. Do not say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness. Every day we should ask God for his favor. Every day we should ask God to bless us and to look upon us uh, with a smile on his face. Every day we need to ask God to grow this church and to expand its ministries. We need to expect that God will answer those prayers. But as God prospers us and grows us and sustains us, may we never get proud. May we never think that it's because of our work or our efforts or because that we're smart or because that we've been righteous. What God is going to accomplish through us is pure grace. It's an undeserved gift. On the eve of this great victory, God says to his people, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Are we one whit less stubborn than the children of Israel? Are we one whit more righteous than the children of Israel? I doubt it. And so humility is the only way that we can go. So let's talk about the church. Peter, in that snippet of uh, his letter that we just read, Peter is writing to a church. It's a general epistle. It's not to one particular church. It's to the church in general. But the church at that time was tiny. And yet, Peter sees that the hope and the promise of the church is glorious. Peter calls Christians partakers in the glory that's going to be revealed. He says that Christians will receive an unfading crown of glory, which is remarkable because, in fact, they were as poor and as downtrodden as you can imagine. Unlike the children of Israel who could see the promised land in front of them just across the river, who knew that they would be occupying this land in a matter of days, the church that Peter is writing to is hanging on by the skin of its teeth for the long haul. They don't know when relief is going to come. What makes it so surprising that these people, these downtrodden people in this empire, these people, Peter says to them, clothe yourselves in humility. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And you might think to yourselves, well, how could these poor people be any more humble than they already are? They had nothing. They were nobodies. Langdon Gilkey went to China in the 1940s to teach English, and he ended up in a Japanese concentration camp, along with many other Westerners, including many missionaries. And Gilkey at that time was not a believer, but one of the things that he discovered was that uh, people in general, even missionaries, in dire circumstances, are profoundly 
selfish. The missionaries were using religious reasons why they should get extra rations of food. He later wrote that the self-interest in the camp was almost omnipotent. But there was one exception that he noticed in the camp. It was a fellow by the name of Eric Lydell. He was a British Olympic runner. He was also a missionary in China. Maybe you remember him from Chariots of Fire. Gilkey was struck by how different Lydell was from the others, his sense of humor, his willingness to be of service, his humility, his sense of peace in these terrible circumstances. And he wrote about him years later after he himself had become a Christian. And he attributed the difference that he saw in Lydell, who was a Scottish Presbyterian, to Lydell's complete Trust in his salvation by grace alone. Lydell did not think that God's favor in his life had anything to do with how good he, Lydell, had been or with anything that he, Lydell, had accomplished or as was a result of his righteousness. Lydell recognized that every favor that he had in his life was just pure grace. It was just a gift from God. God was just pouring out blessings and favors on someone who was a nobody. I think that's a core Christian message. I think the core of the Bible is grace and God's grace and salvation by grace and not by works. It is God's favor and God's grace that brings us blessings. It is not our own righteousness. And when we embrace that, and by the way, that is as opposite from what the world teaches you every moment of every day as you can get. The world is all about uh, 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 being rated on your performance. And in your job, in your school, in your romances, you are being constantly judged and rated and favored or disfavored based upon your performance. It's different in the Bible. God is different from us in this regard. God gives us things not because we deserve them, but because He's a good God and He likes to give things. A couple things happen when we embrace that core of the gospel. One thing that happens is, is that we're always grateful. We Whatever comes our way, we're, we're thanking God, we're, we're praising His names, we're, we're able to give thanks in all circumstances. So, that's number one. But the second thing that happens is it keeps us humble. When we realize that we haven't accomplished these things in our own power, it keeps us humble even when we rise to great things. Listen, God wants His people to rise to great things. But the way we're going to do that is by remaining humble in our spirit. This view of the world is the opposite of the view of a privileged person who expects and demands things to come his way. It is a view that allows us to be content with what we have. It keeps us from envy of people who have more than we have. And so Peter can say to the persecuted, tiny, little, virtually underground church of his time, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Don't think that you're better than someone else in the church. Don't puff yourself up in the church or in your spiritual excellence. Humble yourselves with each other. Because 
we must also humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Peter is pointing out that the church may act and be busy in this world, but ultimately it's the primary cause as God who determines what happens and what won't happen. We're not half so much in control as we like to think that we are. Wonder of wonders, God does big things with little people. We see this throughout all of scripture. We see God stand on the side of little people. There is a glory and there is a crown coming for all who are in Christ. But that glory and that crown won't be given to us because of our doing. It's going to be God's grace in our lives. God does call us to action. God calls us to work. God calls us to do big and hard things. But in and under and behind and through our work and our action, constantly, all of the time, is the hand of God making supernatural things happen. And so when God begins to bring fruit to our labors... When God begins to prosper the work of this ministry as He will, we will not become proud. When God grows our church and causes our ministries to thrive, we will not pat ourselves on the back. We will say, thank you God, you have brought this to pass. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for 